Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be listening. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition of Bible Bites, episode 278, as we continue reading through the scriptures, and we are in the Gospels of the New Testament. Today's reading is found in Matthew chapter 9 through 10. Excuse me. In chapter 9, we see more and more of Jesus' authority as he is the promised king. First, he comes back to Capernaum in verse 1. You'll see, remember in the end of chapter 8, the people of the Gadarenes, after he had healed the demonic men, they wanted him to leave. They didn't want him to stay. And being a gentleman, he will not stay where he's not wanted. He will leave when you ask him to leave. I pray you don't do that. You don't want to do that. Trust me. They missed out on a tremendous amount of blessing and other deliverances and healings that could have happened had they allowed him to stay. But no, they asked him to leave, so he left. And then in verse 2 through 8, we see he goes back to, it's mentioned to be his city. It's really uh, his headquartered city, which was Capernaum in that area of the Galilee. And so we have in verse 2 through 8 him delivering a paralytic, him healing a paralytic. And notice in this passage that there that it was the faith of the friends that Jesus noted. And it's amazing because their faith was able to bring healing to this man. Now we're not told <clears throat> whether he, I would assume that he also had faith. Um, perhaps that's why they brought him to begin with. He wanted to come, and he couldn't get there on his own. But it is worthy of note that it was his friends also that Jesus noticed all of their faith. And faith is what moves God. This is the same paralytic that later on you'll read in Mark, that Mark tells us that the friends lowered him through the roof. In chapter 9, we have the calling of Matthew, who was also known as Levi, and he was the tax collector. And then in verse 10 through 13, we see the dinner party that's held at Matthew's house. Mark 2.15 tells us that. And I noticed this, that Jesus being there drew sinners to want to be around him. And so sinners and tax collectors and others that were not living right and not knowing God and not living for God, were drawn to Jesus' presence. Oh, he came to save sinners. And is there something about the church today and the people of God today that would draw people? Do they sense a true, sincere love, goodness, compassion, and acceptance from the church, not acceptance in condoning their sin, but in loving the person, wooing the person. We see that here because it drew sinners and they came. And then Jesus makes this declaration in a, in a way that people can understand it. He's like, the people who are well don't need to go to the doctor. People who are sick are the ones that go see the doctor. Now, sometimes you may have a well follow-up visit or a checkup or something like that. But Jesus is saying here that it's sick people who need healing. 
And so he's correlating that to the spiritual condition of sin and sinners being the ones that they need the healing that he can bring through repentance. In verse 14 and on, we see John's disciples bring a question about fasting. But Jesus says, since he's the bridegroom and he's here with them now, they don't need to fast until he's gone. So here he gives us a hint about the fact that he will go one day. He will not be with them physically forever at that time. But it gives us a hint toward his coming death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I love in verse 17 where he gives instruction about the new wine and the new wine skins. And I've written an article on my website, actually on CovenantTruthMinistries.com website, under our articles. This is under the teaching article section on the new wine skins. And I found something very beautiful in studying this and in correlating it to a prophetic word from Isaiah 65, 8. And it is about the new wine and why it's so important to try to preserve it. And notice here also, I saw something when I was studying this. In Jesus speaking here, he's saying that the new wine skins and the new wine both are preserved. And in another passage, when you read about this, you'll see he talks about the old wine skins. Old wineskins that would normally burst and spill the wine and waste it all and be completely ruined can be made into new ones. And that's Jesus' goal, is that we will, we will be uh, able to and willing to let him make us into new wine, in new wineskins, so that we can carry the new wine, because the new wine carries a blessing. And it's that blessing that Jesus wants to be distributed and shared. Praise be to God. Verse 18 through 19, we see Jairus. We're told in another place that this was Jairus, and he comes to Jesus, and he he says, you know, my daughter has just died. Please come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. He encourages him. He says, you've got enough authority that she doesn't have to stay dead. You can raise her from the dead. Notice what he's saying here. So Jesus says, okay, I'll come. So they start, and they're en route to, to go to Jairus' house when they have an interruption, a very major interruption, so to speak. There's a woman who has suffered for 12 years with a bleeding discharge, a discharge from her body of blood, This made her, under the Torah, under the law in the Old Testament, it made her unclean. She could not be around people, and yet here she is among the crowd in her utter desperation. She had heard about Jesus, and she knew enough that she knew He is the Messiah because she she obviously knew and believed that He was the Messiah And he was the one that Malachi prophesied about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, that would come with healing in his tallit, healing in the corners of his tallit in the tzitzit. And that's when Jesus spoke to her about her faith. Her faith 
was that he was the Messiah. He was the promised one that Malachi prophesied about, and he had the healing him. And I've got a um, audio teaching about the healing him. Praise be to God, and it's about this story. So Jesus, after he heals her, he goes on to Jairus' house, and he has to, first of all, put out all of those who are mocking him. You know, he goes in and says, well, she's, she's not dead, she's sleeping. He didn't mean that she wasn't dead. He meant that she was not going to be permanently dead. She was going to raise from the dead. He was fixing to heal her and restore her. And they mocked him, you know. I mean, they, they mocked him and they said, uh, you know, they just called him all kinds of names, ridiculed him. And so what did he do? He put them outside. He got rid of the naysayers. And then he raised the girl from the dead, hallelujah, and restored her. <clears throat> In later on, verse 27 and on, he heals two blind men. And notice that faith is required no matter what we're getting from God, whether it's healing, salvation, deliverance, whatever it is, faith is absolutely crucial. We must truly believe, believe that he is he is and that he is able to do what he has said, that he is a rewarder of those who will diligently seek him like Hebrews tells us about. And in here we see a pattern and a principle perhaps that the measure of faith that we bring to the table when we come to him determines the level or degree of our healing because he said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So there's some principle there about the measure of faith that we bring to the table determining the level or degree of healing that we'll receive from the Lord. In verse 32, 33, he casts out a demon and healed the mute man. So we're seeing here his authority, his authority over all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, um, demons and demon possession and all of those things. He is the one with the authority. And so notice in verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So in essence, this could form to, to some degree a summary of Jesus' earthly ministry. Notice in verse 36 through 38. I've read this many times, but I saw something today that I had not yet seen prior to today. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I had never before noted how connected the speech that he gave about this was to him having compassion and seeing them. And what I want to point out about that is this. This reveals the heart of the true shepherd who Jesus is. That's what's revealed here. He was the true shepherd that was prophesied in Ezekiel 34 and that he 
de defines himself to be in John chapter 10. And then, of course, you can find out other passages, prophetic words from the Old Testament that depict him as the shepherd as well, including Psalm 23 that we all love. But notice this, the true shepherd cares about the condition of his flock. And it's in that context that he gives us the words of 37 and 38 here, that the harvest being plentiful, but the laborers are few, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, he's connecting that to the weary sheep, to the sheep that have no shepherd, to the sheep that are scattered and need help. And what it told me was that everyone who will answer this call, who will become a laborer in the field of the Lord, a laborer for the Lord's harvest, must be of the same heart and share the same burden for the sheep that the shepherd does. Because in this context, the harvest is reaching those people who are wearied and have no true shepherd to care for them. And the laborers here are to be defined as those under shepherds, you might say, not necessarily um, that as a title, but we might refer to them like an under shepherd who will care for his sheep and bring them to his fold and to his pasture. How beautiful is that to see that that's what our job is. That's what we're called to do. We are the part of the laborers that answer this call. And our job is to care for his sheep. Our job is to care for those who are wearied and scattered and as, as if they have no shepherd and lead them to the true shepherd and show them how beautiful and how wonderful he is and draw them to come into his fold. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful passage that is. And to understand that in the context of what he was saying there, may God grant every Christian to share his heart as the true shepherd that we will care about the sheep as he cares about them and we will draw them unto him so that they can find sweet pasture with him. Praise God. Then in chapter 10, <clears throat> we're told here about the 12 disciples that he gathered together. And we're given their names here, and we'll talk about that in a moment too. But notice in this passage that it says that he gave them power. Now, some translations may translate that authority, which is actually more valid in this case, because this is the Greek word exousia. Matthew has, has uh, over the last several chapters here, been really honing in and focusing on the fact that Jesus is the son of David, the son of God, the rightful heir, the king and Lord that was promised. Therefore, he has authority. And so he has shown us in many of these chapters, his words had authority. Remember, they, they marveled because he spoke with authority. 
Then he had authority over all kinds of different sicknesses, diseases, even death, demons. He's got all this authority. And now we see where Jesus is calling his disciples and he shares or delegates that same authority to them. So he is saying that he is giving them and sharing with them, delegating to them before he sends them out. He delegates to them authority as his disciple, as his ambassador, authority over demonic spirits to be able to cast them out and authority over sicknesses and diseases to be able to heal them. In other words, the same authority that he has just exhibited, they will now carry with them. And so then he gives us the names of the 12 disciples, and we can read those. Um, there, you know, obviously Judas Iscariot is one of those that, that stand out to us because he became the betrayer of the Lord. Uh, he was a man from Kerioth, um, and it was either a place in southern Judah or in Moab. He's the one in question as to whether he was truly a Jew or not. It's possible he was from the, the Moab place instead, but most believe he was probably Jewish. And then we're told about the three disciples. They're listed here among the 12, of course, and, and there were three that formed somewhat of an inner circle. It wasn't a degree of favoritism. It was more in the fact that they needed more preparation because of the task and the responsibility that those three were going to bear. As a matter of fact, early in Acts, in the book of Acts, we find out that James among them was martyred under Herod. But John and Peter had uh, higher callings, higher degrees of responsibility and of persecution and other things that befell them. So in verse five and beyond, Jesus is sending them on their first mission trip. Notice this, that in this particular missions trip, they were not to go to the ends of the earth and to the world like they were when he ascended. This mission trip that he told them, he said, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In, in other words, you're going right here around these towns, around these people in this land, and you're going to preach the gospel and God's kingdom to my people, the Jewish people. You're going to heal, cleanse, raise to life, cast out demons, do all of those things and do it freely, not for money, not for filthy lucre. You go freely. You've received. You freely do it. I'm sending you forth. And he says, don't even worry about your provision, but accept the fact that when you go places like this in my name, people will give you what you need. They will provide your lodging. They will provide your food, accept their partnership, accept their gifts. And don't you worry about it, but you let me provide for you through the people. And that's how God will do it in ministry. And so there is a place for partnering with ministries and those who are spreading the gospel and those who are doing the work of the kingdom. In verse 11, he speaks to him about where to stay and how to find the right kind of people to stay with that will help provide for them. He talks about greeting the householder or welcoming them, being, being a loving and compassionate ho uh, guest, embracing them and welcoming them. 
In verse 13 through 14, he makes the distinction about those who will receive the truth versus those who will not. That's what's at issue here. And if people will not, and you have tried and tried and tried to reach them or whatever, there's, there comes a time when he tells them you would shake off the dust off your feet. In other words, you've done your part. You've done everything you can do. Their responsibility is their own responsibility now, and you will not be blamed for it. They stand uh, responsible their own self. In verse 15, he gives a warning that, <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. In verse, uh, let's see. He gives the warning down here about how he sends us. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, he's telling us Jesus did not mince words. He didn't try to tell people, come to me and your life will be blessed and all oh, you'll have it easy and all of this kind of stuff. And you don't have to change. You don't have to repent. You don't have to do anything different. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. Jesus preached and you will find it all through the New Testament as we go through the truth of the gospel. You come to me and let me free you from the bondage of sin so that you are now free to live right, to live holy lives. And yes, you're going to be hated. I mean, he tells us right here in these passages, as a matter of fact, in verse 22, he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He gives them the warning. He says, don't fear the people that can just destroy your life or kill you. He says, you fear God who can not only kill your body, but who can also send your soul and body to hell. And so there are things that, that we need to understand because we have this idea of this modern day Jesus that is not necessarily the truth. We need to preach the truth about Jesus. The Christian life is not necessarily easy, but it is worthwhile. Does it generate hatred from other people who are anti-Christian, who are of the anti-Christ spirit, who are not happy because we are preaching the truth? Oh, yes, it will. And Jesus is making it clear here that there is a cost to discipleship. And you need to understand, or he's saying you need to understand, if you come and follow me, you may be persecuted. You may be killed for my sake, but the reward in the end will be worth it. That's what he's saying. He's not sugarcoating anything here, but he's also saying that sometimes in verse 18, for instance, persecution and the fact that you may lose your life or be martyred or whatever, it becomes a testimony to others. And how many times have, have we seen evidence of that, even in recent times here, for people that have been murdered or, or harmed or persecuted for their faith, and yet because of their stance for the Lord and the fact that their faith did not fail, they have been able to win even some of their captors to Jesus. So we, we need to just trust God. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say. He says, in the moment that you need it, I'm going to be there just in time and I'm going to speak the very words you need to say right when you need it. Hallelujah. This is an unpopular call. 
but it's true and it's worthwhile. And then he goes on and he says, disciples are to be like their teachers in the same manner. In other words, that's why he said, follow me, come and walk with me, watch what I do, when I, when I speak, how I speak, watch how I do things and be likewise, do likewise, you do the same. So that's what we are to be as his disciples. And he tells us in verse 27, be bold and preach the truth without fear or reservation. Hallelujah. He tells us that we can have confidence in verse 29 through 30, that if we are in the will of God, he will cover us and no harm will come to us outside of his will. In other words, God's got us covered. And notice this in verse 37 or 31, excuse me, in verse 31, he says, do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says that there's not even one sparrow that falls to the ground outside of God's will. And so he's saying, you, beloved, are more important to me than even the sparrows. Does he love the sparrows? Oh, yes, he does. He loves everything and everyone that he's created. But man has a special place in his heart because he's made us to be like him. He's made us to be his reflection, and he's made us to have an eternal relationship with him. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. In verse 34 through 39, he's calling us to follow him, even if our family ends up becoming enemies because they can't receive our message. They don't want to walk in it. They don't want to accept it. And he knew what he was talking about because his own family, other than his mother, his own family, his brothers and sisters, his half-brothers and sisters had rejected him up until after his death. They came to know him after his death and re resurrection, and they came into the faith after that. So even if our families don't receive us, let's do what God's called us to do anyway and trust him. And we pray for them and trust him to take care of them. Hallelujah. He tells us that if you receive me, you have received him who sent me. You've received my father, God. Hallelujah. In verse 41, he speaks about he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. What this is talking about is the fact that there is a reward for partnership with ministries. Even if you can't, you can't necessarily do the same job that a particular minister, prophet, or righteous person is doing. But if you receive them, if you will help them in their ministry, if you partner with them, if you pray for them, if you welcome them, if you help them, then you are partnering in, in, in their ministry, not only in that, but you will also partner in their reward and you will be rewarded for that. And then he goes on down and he says, even simple, unnoticed, tiny acts like giving a cup of water in Jesus' name and in his love, will be remembered and rewarded. We don't serve the Lord for the rewards, but God is just that good. He promises that he will reward, 
And so, beloved, I encourage you to bear fruit for him. And remember that even the little tiny things that appear to be unnoticed in this world will be noticed, remembered, and rewarded when we get to heaven. And it will all be worthwhile when we see his face and are with him eternally. I pray this has been a blessing to you. Lord willing that you can join us again in future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today.